So Luke chapter 3. That's what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about that. So yes, we say it Luke chapter 3 because we're big fans of the force. Um, Okay, Uh, Luke chapter 3. Now what we're going to do is uh, we're going to relook at a passage we looked at last week. This is the baptism of Jesus. Verse uh, 21 is where we'll start. And then we're going to use this to jump into some other things. Luke 3, 21. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, what we saw last week is that this declaration, this heavenly voice, uh, was the fulfillment, spoke two things over this Jesus that were in fulfillment of just a great many promises uh, in the Old Testament. And so we looked at the idea that what Luke is telling us is that this is the unique one and only Son of God. And he even presents a genealogy that reinforces that point. So this should all be review. But what I want to do this morning is I just want, before we move on from this text, I just want to draw your attention to the, to the fact that you see the Father speaking, the Son receiving, and the Holy Spirit that are all present at one time in Jesus' baptism. And this is one of the clearest pictures of something we call the Trinity. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you're thinking Trinity is a character from Matrix, and that is true, but Trinity is also a doctrine of the historic church. The idea of the Trinity is that God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet they are one God. And that, if you think, well, that sounds kind of confusing, you are absolutely correct. And it's not because a group of old guys in the third or fourth century decided, you know, we really need to make this thing more complicated, so let's cook this idea up. It is all throughout the scripture. So I'm going to do about a 10 minute excursus on the Trinity. Um, And I know you were really excited about that when you came in. There is a so what to come, but it's going to feel a bit like seminary, okay? Now, this is going to be free as opposed to the fact that I paid off my student loans last year, (laughs) years later. So, so... If you get lost, you're in good company, but, but fight with me through some of this stuff because I know it's thick, but it really, really is important. And you'll see why when we're done. When we're done, you will say, okay, all right, I see why that matters. So if you'll take my word for it, I want to fire up the iPad. And I want to use this passage in Luke to have the bigger conversation about how has God revealed himself to us. And what you have to do when you're, when you're coming up with kind of the picture of God, there are three classes of texts, different scriptural texts that you have to do justice to. The first group of texts are scriptures that clearly say there's only one God. So, for instance, Deuteronomy 4, Israel, you were shown these things so that you might know that Yahweh, anytime you see capital L-O-R-D in all caps like that, that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, so that you might know that Yahweh is God, besides him there is no other. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord alone. There's only one God is reaffirmed. And that was the great gift of Jewish theology to the world. There are not many gods, there's just one. John 17, Jesus refers, as he's praying, he says, This is eternal life, that they, the disciples, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, this is Paul writing and saying, Yet for us... There is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came. 
Or uh, 1 Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity. So over and over and over, and this is kind of the no-duh portion of this presentation, right? There is just one God, not many, not subsets, just one who is overall in all and through all. So the idea is that you have a group of texts that say there's one God. All right, now we'd all understand that, but then you have groups of passages that say the Father... There's this character called the Father who is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So let's look briefly at some text there. Paul refers to God as the Father all over the place. So in 1 Corinthians, he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 1, Paul's an apostle who was sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Jesus refers to God as Abba Father all over the place. Here's just one example. Um, He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, a reference to the Messiah himself, will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So that one's pretty non-controversial. God, there is one God, and often this God is referred to as Father. Now where people start disagreeing is over whether or not Jesus was called divine or ever claimed to be God himself. So Luke, uh, we'll get to it in about two years at the rate we're going, Luke chapter 5, when Jesus saw their faith, some dudes had dug through a roof. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins, but who? God alone. Now remember, when Jesus said this, here's how you got forgiveness of sins. Once a year, you went to the city of Jerusalem, you went to the temple, you went to a priest, you bought an animal, and it was sacrificed, and forgiveness was pronounced over you. Here's a Galilean peasant just kind of roaming the countryside saying, oh yeah, you're forgiven. So you see the offense. Jesus was taking upon himself a role that only God had in Jewish thought. 1 Corinthians, we looked at the first part of this passage. Yet for us there is but one God. But notice the second part. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now when Paul uses the word Lord there, that word Lord was a uh, a word that was also used of God all over the place. So there is one God and there is one Lord. And they're different and yet they're similar. Or you have uh, in the book of John, Jesus, there's this character named Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas Uh, does not believe that Jesus has risen from the dead unless he actually sees the evidence. And so Jesus shows up and says, okay, here you go. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas then stops and makes this declaration. My Lord and my God. See, there was nothing in those Jewish people that followed Jesus that would have led them naturally as an outgrowth of Jewish theology to worship somebody else's God. They were strict, utter, and absolute monotheists. There is one God, Yahweh is His name. But it was because of what they saw happening in Jesus that they had to start thinking, okay, so maybe God is one is different than what we've always meant when God is one. And so they start ascribing Godness to this Jesus. Titus chapter 2. Paul writes, While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, you have passages that talk about God the Father. You have passages that talk about God the Son. Now you have passages that talk about God the Holy Spirit. So, in the book of Acts, a man named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, sell a piece of land. 
And they tell the church they're giving the entire proceeds to the church. When in actuality, they keep some for themselves. Peter responds, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to who? The Holy Spirit. And have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to who? So, to lie, so they lied to this Holy Spirit, and they've lied to God. So lying to God is lying to the Holy Spirit, and lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. So, right, so, so implied in there is that lying to the Spirit is lying to God. Luke 12, and everyone who speaks, this is Jesus, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, against the Messiah, will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, now you blaspheme Something divine in Jewish thought, right? So again, there's, you can only blaspheme something that would be considered God. Or 2 Corinthians 5. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, I know, I know. You're tired. You're here for the Super Bowl. You are looking forward to guacamole. It's nice and warm. And this is not thrilling stuff. I get it. But I want you, there are some really important things to see out of this. So, first, there are texts that clearly say there's only one God. Secondly, there are texts that say God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. Now, it would be really easy to say, okay, I I, I got how this works. So in the Old Testament, God is the Father, and in the Gospels, God is Jesus, and now God is the Holy Spirit. It's one God in like three different roles, wearing three different masks, if you will. The problem is there is a third group of passages that make this ridiculously complicated. Go ahead and put those up. There are passages where you see and have the simultaneous distinction and interaction of Father, Son, and Spirit all happening at the same time. So it's not that it was God the Father, He was the Father for a while, now He's the Son, and now He's the Spirit. You have them all interacting. So the passage we just looked at. You have Jesus in Luke. Jesus being baptized, the Father speaking, and the Spirit descending. Or in Matthew 28, Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the singular name, Father, Son, and Spirit. So if God had a business card, what's His name? Father, Son, and Spirit. I mean, that's the idea. What's the name of God? Father, Son, and Spirit. Or you have Acts chapter 7. But Stephen who is full of the Holy Spirit, looked to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he's filled with the Spirit, seeing the Father and the Son. Or in 2 Corinthians, Paul does this stuff all over the place. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. So, texts that say there's one God, texts that say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and they're all God at the same time. Okay. So, the best we can do is something like this. There is one God who exists forever in perfect community is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons are the one eternal God. Or saying it slightly differently, there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are each fully and each equally God. Now, if you're going, I have no idea what you're saying, right? You're, I, I hear the English words... I understand the word separately, but you put all that together and it's kind of mind-blowing. Yes, let me make it worse. Okay, go to John chapter 1. All right, again, there's a so what coming. Now, my wife, Friday night, 
wife and I have a small group. She confessed. Now, it used to be, now you got to know I love my wife. And I said this when she was here last service, so this is not, but it's so funny. But, okay, at the 8 o'clock service, there was somebody sitting right about there, and the lady just totally fell asleep on her husband's shoulder. And so I see that. If you're going to sit that close, I have to say something at that point. So I, I just tell her it's totally okay. She's in good company because my wife falls asleep every time. Because on Friday night, she confessed to our small group that there has never been one sermon I've ever given that she has not drifted off to. And I thought, and I thought so I just I want to give you permission. You're in great company. And then, and then I've, written, I've written five books, not that that's a huge deal, but she's not read one of them. And, and, so, and so it's so great because you know, she just says, you know, Mike, you really need someone in your life who's just not impressed. And, and, and that's me. And so so if, you're, if you're tempted to drift off in the middle of this, that is just fine. There is a so what coming. I just thought it was hilarious. She said Friday night, we were, I don't remember what we were talking about. She's like, yeah, I, I think I drift off every single sermon of yours. And when you're, so, so when you're new at this, okay, so like years ago I was new and I would actually practice my sermons in front of her. Within five minutes, I kid you not, 100% of the time within five minutes, out. Some of you are thinking, I, I can't blame her. John chapter one. No, no. John chapter one, verse one. Now, oh, this, is, this just gets crazier and crazier. In the beginning... So the minute you read in the beginning, what are you thinking of? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, now notice Word is capitalized, so this is a title of somebody, name of somebody. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now think about that for a second. So you have God, and you have this Word, and God was the Word, but the Word was with God, therefore differentiated in some way from God. Oh, of course. Makes total sense. And then you wonder, okay, who is this Word? Jump down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. All right, so the Word turns out to be Jesus. So Jesus was God in the beginning and was with God in the beginning. Identity and yet distinction all at the same time. And in case that didn't, you know, (laughs) clear it up, go to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So he's God and he's in the closest possible relationship with the Father and has made him known. Okay, if you're lost, again, just yes. Go to John chapter 5. There's a why coming. Hold on. John chapter 5. Now Jesus is in trouble, per usual. He's been healing on the Sabbath. Notice his defense. Verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, John says. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his own father. See, back then you could say our father, God our father. But to walk around saying God is my father, he was making himself what? Equal with 
God. Or jump over to John chapter 8. This one is mind-blowing. John chapter 8. See, people will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. They, the, the church kind of put that on him. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear he did. John chapter 8, verse 56. So he's just been called demon-possessed. So he's defending himself against, you know, and you never want to be called demon-possessed. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, that's not a very nice thing to say. So Jesus is responding to this, and he says to the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw my day and was glad. And they look at him and they say, you're nuts. You are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, what? I am. Now, if you're new to the Bible, that phrase, I am, comes straight from a book called Exodus in the Old Testament where a man named Moses encounters God. God says to Moses, go and deliver my people, Israel, out of slavery from Egypt. Okay? Moses says, if I go, and they say, who sent you? What name should I give them? God responds, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent me to you. So when Jesus looks at a bunch of Jewish people and says, before Abraham was, I am, could there be any mistaking what he meant by that? In fact, the Jews understood it. Verse 59, at this they picked up stones to put him to death. But Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. (laughs) Just, you know, it's just Thursday in the life of Jesus. You know, it's it's not a huge deal. It's just, you know, it's kind of what it is. Go to John 10. John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking about the sheep. He calls the followers God has given him his sheep. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Now he doesn't mean one in purpose or, you know, one in like we share a common goal, but he means one in essence. And and the way he phrases it is declarative that's his intention and notice the jews pick up on this again his jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him but jesus said i've shown you many good works from the father for which of these do you stone me we're not stoning you for any good work but for blasphemy because you a mere man what claim to be god and then just to make it crazier go to john 14 where jesus starts predicting the arrival of the holy spirit John 14, verse 15. I will ask the Father. So Jesus says, I will ask the Father. So you have Father and Son interacting. And He will give you another advocate. Now the word another means another of the same kind. So He's been their advocate up to this point. I'm going to ask the Father to send you another one of Me. To help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And then you have for three chapters... Jesus talking to the Father about sending the Spirit who brings glory to the Son and the Son brings glory to the Father and the Father loves the Son and you have this crazy sort of interplay going on for three chapters of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So, what you have, men and women, isn't a bunch of old guys inventing something. What you have, if you take the Gospel seriously, this is where it takes you. Because it's clear there's only one God And yet, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And yet, they're all God at the same time together, but distinct. And if you think, okay, I got no concept of that. Correct. 
But there is a way that the early church fathers used to describe this that I think is pretty cool. Go to John 17. Now, we're getting close to so whatness. We're getting close. You, you, you sat through the worst, the hardest. And some of you bag on me because I'm always apologizing. I'm, it's not for you. I know some of I got fellow geeks out there who love this stuff. It's the people that just came in wanting you know, help on dating or something, and they're just sitting through. <laughs> Feel for you. This will help you get married. I promise. <laughs> John 17, verse 5. Now, this is Jesus praying in front of his disciples to God about his disciples. Okay? So he says, And now, Father, verse 5, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So before God created anything, Jesus was glorified and loved in his relationship to the Father, which I find mind-blowing. Jump down to verse 20. My prayer is not just for my disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you've given me, because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Now that is a whole lot of me and you and them, and that is a thick passage. But notice how he's speaking of his relationship to the Father. I am in you, you are in me. His disciples, they are in us and we are in them. It's in this kind of mutual indwelling sort of language. Now, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, some of the earliest Christian writers coined a term to describe this. They called it perichoresis. Peri means around, and choresis is the word we use to get choreography, which means to move or to envelop. And so perichoresis, one of the ways to translate the word is the divine dance, that at the center of the universe is a father and a son and a spirit who are all God, but who all love and delight in each other perfectly. Whatever view of God you have, it isn't big enough or good enough. Guaranteed. Because what the Scriptures force upon us is the idea that there is a son who looks at his father and wants to bring glory to the father and a spirit that looks at the father and son and seeks to bring glory to the father and son and a father who delights in exalting his son and the spirit that brings attention to the son. You just have this mutual dancing of I'm in you and you are in me. Perichoresis is describing the closest possible relationship you can have with somebody and still be separate from them. Perichoresis is is at the center of the universe. There is a, a dance of divine, intense, passionate love and that we are created not because God was lonely, not because God had ego needs that needed met so he had created some worshipers, not because God was depressed, but because out of the overflow of his delight in community from eternity past, he created in the same way that a married couple will sit and in love Not because they have some hole in their relationship have a child, but simply out of the overflow of their love for each other have a child. So we are the products, 
Not of a God who wound up the universe and then said, good luck. Not of a God, you know, who sits up there totally unconcerned, but human beings, the created order, is the product of a joyful overflow of who God is and what he's like in his own being. God was never lonely. There's never been aloneness in the universe. Now, you may think, okay, well, fancy word. You almost got me with that, but I still don't get why it matters. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And if you don't know where that is, that's on page number 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now, we get into some why it matters. Genesis 1 verse 26, which is on page 2. Ruined that whole joke. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image. Now, a really good question is, who's the us? Who's the us there? Now, for Christians, we go back there and say, well, yeah, it's Trinity. And there's a lot of debate over whether or not the Jews who would have heard this or have written this would have meant that. It could be a royal pronoun that God is using in describing himself. It could be a heavenly council, uh, because there are hints of that in some of the Psalms. We, we're not quite sure. We look back and go, well, the, well the, obviously the us is us. I mean, isn't that interesting? The one God describes himself as an us early in the story. But what does the us do? Let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness. Verse 27, so God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. What does it mean to say that you are made in the image of a triune God? What does that mean? What does it mean to say that at the core of the universe is a divine dance between one God who exists in three persons eternally, who was never lonely, never depressed, never needed anything from us, but simply out of the joyful overflow of perfect love creates people to share in it. What does it mean to be made in the image of that God? Well, I would answer it by asking a different question. Why is country music popular? I can't stand it. I I hate it with a passion. I do. I do. It'd be okay. It'd be okay if God came back and destroyed it. (laughs) Why are songs about heartbreak universal? Adele can get up and sell billions of records simply lamenting the loss, right? I mean, Taylor Swift has made an entire career. Why is it that 13-year-old young ladies will be at school with their friends, they'll come home from school, get on the phones with the same friends they were just with all day, and then hang up the phone later to text those same friends. Why is it that no matter what technology human beings create, we will subvert it and use it to connect with people? The personal computer, right, used to be this monolithic thing that you dialed in through AOL and it was nasty, and now, man, it's nothing but a connection machine, Right, Even the phones we have in our car, I mean, we're just constantly wanting and willing and able to connect. We just can't help it. Why is it that human beings are insatiable when it comes to connecting? Why is it that our worst punishment is called solitary confinement? 
Because human beings, each and every one of them, religious or not, are made in the image of a triune community of oneness. In other words, perichoresis, you're made for that. You're made to be known and to be loved and to be accepted entirely, fully, and completely. And anyone who objects to it, all we'd have to do is watch their life and their life would betray their objection. We can't help it. To be made in the image of a triune God means we are made to need each other. And that is why in Genesis 2, it says the only thing not good before sin entered the world was what? The man was alone. Genesis 1, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Genesis 2, it's not good. The man's alone. And lots of reasons, lots of theology behind that, but minimally, it means that part of the redemptive story and intention for God was that He existed us as a community. Notice, he, God created them, male and female, He created them. In other words, He made us to need each other. To want the kind of perichoresis that He Himself enjoys. That is why when you look at soci- sociological studies of teenagers, number one issue isn't drugs, isn't peer pressure, it's loneliness. No one loves them, no one delights in them, no one knows them and understands them. See, they're just more honest. The rest of us learn to cover that up. But they're just more honest. Marriage. Why is marriage sometimes the greatest of joys and the most painful of pains? Because it's the dance. And when the dance works, you get a taste of what God intended. But when it doesn't, the pain is unlike any other. See, to be made in the image of a trinity means, among other things, that you and I, in small doses, solitude is a great thing. But we're made to need each other. But, when sin and death entered the world, what was the first thing our first parents did? What did they do? Did they rob a bank? What did they do? Lost their keys? What did they do? Okay, nothing from this whole section. Yes, they hid. Right? First thing, they wake up, they realize they're naked, they sow fig leaves. Second thing, God is walking through the garden, however that worked, and they hide from Him. Which means the first thing damaged when sin and death entered the world was what? Relationship. Perichoresis. They no longer had it. So, you and I, Genesis 1 says, you and I hunger for it deeply, but Genesis 3 says... The universal human response to sin is to hide. So we are accomplished hiders. And the best hiders out there are religious people. We can hide behind our liturgies, our confessionals, our songs, how we look good. I mean, you can argue. I remember we would be arguing like mad heading into church. And then you pulled in. We got out. And it was, how are you doing? God is good all the time. God is good. Right? There has to be a place where the sloppy, the screwed up, the misfits, the outcasts can learn that at the core of the universe is a God of whom it is said is love. Doesn't do love, but is love. 
How can you say that God in His essence is love? Well, if God is a community of oneness, that's how you say it. God didn't start loving when He made us. He's been that way forever and will be that way forever. And so the invitation of a redeemed people restored into relationship with Him is to now be restored in relation with each other, which means this has to be a place where you can come out of hiding. We're made for perichoresis. But we hide. Because we're broken. We're screwed up. We're addicts. We're failures. And unfortunately, at its worst, religious communities just add to the hiding. But at their best, religious communities begin to faintly embody the deep theological truth that there is not a darn thing you can do to lose God's love. He loves you more fully and completely and knows you more fully and completely right now at this moment as you really are. And there is not a darn thing you can do to lose it. Now imagine if you actually believed that. Then obedience isn't a chore. We're going to imagine. I mean, just imagine if you actually believe that. Now again, I'm not talking about cliche religious thinking. I'm not talking about self-esteem and about how great you are. Right? I'm talking about what the core of the gospel is. The core of the gospel is that God invites us into the dance he's enjoyed since eternity past. That's what it means to be in Christ. And it took me a while to get this. I still don't get it. And I've told this story before, forgive the repetition, but I was um, speaking, it was Easter weekend, we were at the Pacific Amphitheater, I was going to speak to thousands of people the next day, and Easter's one of those crazy times where people will come up and say, you know, I'm bringing my mom and dad and they're not Christians. (laughs) Right? So the implication is, I've done my job, (laughs) now you do yours, Right? Don't screw this up. Their eternal destiny is riding on whether or not you are good tomorrow. I mean, it's just, so all of this pressure, I sit in all this pressure. And those of you that have done, you know, speak, I mean, you just, oh, you can get it. And then, so I'm, I'm just all angsty on Saturday. I'm nervous. And, you know, what's, what words should I say? And what passage should I use? And, and, and normally I have no problem filling time, but I was so nervous. So it's about 10 o'clock at night. And I show up to the Pacific Amphitheater and I'm walking around praying. Now my little boy at this time was five or six. He was just Nate. Uh, He's 10 now. Nate was just starting to play sports. And I'm embarrassed to say how much I enjoyed the fact that he was dominant in soccer. So he just had a soccer game that day and he'd scored like five or six goals. And, And, you know, it's so silly. I know, I know. Ladies, I know. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't be a validation of my own athletic prowess. I know that. So I'm just loving the fact that he was just dominant out there and they had to put him on defense to stop him from scoring. I love it. So I'm walking around and I'm just praying and, you know, a couple of my friends show up. They didn't know I was there. A couple of my friends show up and they they see that I'm kind of a mess and so they begin to pray over me. Now, when they pray over, like if you're ever being prayed over, I'm good for about 10 minutes of paying attention to what they're saying and then I'm off. So I soon found myself thinking about Nate scoring in soccer. I kid you not. And then, with no exaggeration, the guy who was praying stops, puts his hand on my shoulder, looks at me and says, in the same way you're thinking about Nate right now, God thinks about you.
What do you do? I mean, oh, first of all, I didn't believe it. And I, I replayed. Had I told him anything about Nate today? Had I told the guy? I mean, this just, was just some lucky guess. And then about 20 minutes in, they left, and I was walking around, and it just sunk in an inch, and I was a slobbering mess. In the same way you delighted in your son, I delight in you. Now, is that about how great I am or about, about how great he is? Because, right, without Jesus, I got nothing. But in Jesus, I joined the dance. And to actually believe, not as a, a matter of abstract doctrine or religious cliche, that God actually knows everything and still would interrupt a man as I'm daydreaming to say, I'm for you. I know everything and I'm not going anywhere. There's not, nothing you can do to separate me from your love. There's not, my love, there's nothing. Can you imagine if you actually believed that? See, I, and, and I've had just a couple of tastes since then. See, salvation, yes, it is a judicial image, right? God pours out his wrath on our son because we're guilty. But that's only one image of many other images. We are adopted into a family. We're reconciled like previous enemies. Or that we're now dance partners. And in so doing can come out of hiding. So for some of us, Coming out of hiding, we do that. You go to any AA meeting, go to any of our support groups, those are people who have nothing to gain from pretending. They've tried that, found it empty. And they are raw and ruthless and really uncomfortable for the rest of us who, due to social proprieties, think that our job is really to hide. And certainly, you can't barf over everybody you come across. I get that. But there's a sense, I come across far too many of us who ask for deep prayer things and then say, nobody else knows. And we just want to say, you were never meant to carry this alone. You were never meant. That's why there are so many one and others. Forgive one another. Bear with one another. Be patient with one another. Strengthen one another. Why? Because you were made to need other people. Why? Because you're made in the image of a triune God. And so you just can't help it. And for some of us, we've learned to manage our disappointment by keeping everybody at a distance. Nothing gets through because the stuff that got through early in life hurt us too bad. I just want to suggest that part of the work of Jesus is to lower those defenses so that there may come a time when you could be known and still be loved and still be delighted in. And so we can't solve it all in a setting like this, but I just wanted, before we left that passage in Luke, to say, think about what it means when we say the Father and the Son and the Spirit. What does it mean to be made in the image of that kind of God? So close your eyes if you would. And so Father... I pray um, in moments like this of great tenderness for some of us that you would draw close to the brokenhearted.
there are so many who are filled with shame and fear and guilt. And to actually be open to the possibility, not as a matter of self-esteem, but as a matter of God's majestic grace, that we could be objects of affection from the one who knows us more than anybody else. It's a pretty radical thing. And Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to testify to our spirit that we are indeed children of yours because we can't get it ourselves. And so I pray for grace upon this community. Holy Spirit, come and draw near. Reveal Jesus to us and the Father.